Alrighty. Hola amigos, buenos dias, buenos noches, bienvenidos, welcome, welcome to today's episode of Crooked Crime Sisters. My name is Taylor and I'm here to say that I am the big sister of this duo and with me I usually have my sister Tristan, but due to life Tristan will not be joining me for today's episode. <clears throat> and if I'm being completely honest, I'm not even entirely sure as to when she'll make her triumphant return, but alas, y'all still got me, so there's that. Today I'm coming at you with a case that Tristan actually suggested as she heard it on a fellow Pacific Northwest podcast called Murder in the Rain. If you haven't checked them out, they're great. I love listening to them. Not only have they covered the case, but as little as 12 other podcasts exist on this case, including Crime Junkie and Unresolved. So, when you're done with ours and you just want a different take, go check those out. There's also a few YouTubers who have also covered it. So, when I give our little spiel and say uh, details of a crime that you already know, this is like one of those. This is definitely a crime that a lot of people know about. I am in no way giving you new info, but rather just presenting the case and talking to you about my thoughts and opinions because, yeah, I've got plenty of those. So, with that, are you ready for my intro? Hi, I'm one of the sisters from the Pacific Northwest, and every Thursday, I'm here to give you the details of a crime that you may already know and discuss my thoughts and my opinions. Like you, I'm completely obsessed with true crime, but not in a morbid way. And just like you, I realized many criminals find the Pacific Northwest is the perfect place to make their twisted fantasies a reality. I'm in no way a professional by any means, but rather a crime enthusiast who likes to talk. So with that, let's get started. P.S. Small little disclaimer. So yes, we're back. Yes, I have written like however many episodes I've written. I don't even want to give it away. But um, I will do my best to be super consistent on every Thursday. But if I fail you, let's not like throw firing daggering arrows at me. All right. How about that? So I will try to be as consistent as possible, but I am not perfect. So you get what you get and you don't throw a fit. Okay. All right. Moving on. Today's disclaimer. It's so weird to like do it myself and not have Tristan say it, so pardon me. But today's disclaimer is it's unsolved. It is a disappearance, and I will also say that there are a lot of theories, but to this day, we still have no idea what truly happened, so there's that. Today's case is brought to you by a place known as Puyallup. It is not too far from Tacoma, about 35 miles south of Seattle, and it's best known for its flower fields, as well as the place in which Washington has their state fair like every year. So this is the longest fair in the state, running for 21 days in September, and then again in the spring and April. It's a pretty big fair, and I actually looked up the lineup for um, their fall fair that's going to be coming um, Labor Day weekend, and they have like artists like Blake Shelton, Dirks Bentley, Ann Wilson from Hearts, Nelly, the Beach Boys, and a ton more. So basically, it's like pretty legit. I know for me growing up in a small town, the fair in the summer was like the coolest thing to do from middle school all the way through high school. Uh, I don't really feel like a lot has changed. In So in today's case, we are talking about a 14-year-old girl who went missing from the fair. The Washington State Fair, to be exact. The year was 1992. Um, it was the year that Wayne's World was released. So first off, party on Wayne. The movie Aladdin came out. There was Basic Instinct with Sharon Stone. Nirvana released Nevermind, which was a huge hit. Michael Jackson was on his Dangerous tour, and I still live with the regret that I never got to see him in concert. Like, rip me. 
Clinton was elected president and the real world started on MTV. And I totally remember always wanting to be on real world when I was like in middle school. Cause I was like, oh, that's so cool. These cool people. And now I can't even tell you what I think about it because I think it's trash, but whatever. So here we are. It's 1992. We're in Puyallup, Washington, and it's September, which means it is fair season for those locals. Um, I also learned that the state fair is so big in Washington that it brings over a million people, which dang, that's a lot. So it was September 17th, 1992, which was a Thursday, and Missy Donna Copsey and her friend Trina were going to spend the day at the fair. Makes sense. Fair is fun. But I do question, like, why on a Thursday? Did these girls not have school? Were they skipping school? Like, I'm slightly confused because none of the other podcasts or anything like that ever mention the day other than, like, saying, oh, it was September 17th. But, like, nobody ever says, like, oh, it was Thursday, September 17th. And Misty and her friends are going to the fair. But to me, I just think it, I think it matters because it complicates the situation in my head more. Because, 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 apparently, the girls were actually planning to tell Trina's parents like a little white lie. So they were telling Trina's parents that they were going to be dropped off and picked up by Misty's mom. But in reality, they weren't because Misty's mom was actually working that night. So she was in on the secret too. Uh, She was a caretaker. And so she couldn't leave her client who was a 95 year old woman with Alzheimer's. So the plan was spend the day at the fair and then like catch a bus home at 8.40 p.m. Who knows? Maybe this plan for the girls was to like go after school and spend the evening at the fair. I don't know what it was. All we know is Missy's mom dropped the girls off. Whoever knows what time. I'm assuming because she works like a night shift. It was probably, you know, late, early afternoon. And the girls had every intention of riding the bus back home at 8.40 p.m. Like that was the plan with their mom. That's what they discussed. That's what was working out. However, you know, that's not what happened. So the girls had a blast. Time flew by. And as we could all guess it, they unfortunately missed the bus. So Misty calls her mom from a payphone saying, oh, hey, mom, like we missed the bus. Can you come get us? And being at work with an elderly woman, I'm sure she was probably a little irritated, especially having like a teen daughter. And Misty's mom is like, no. I told you you were supposed to ride the bus. You missed the bus. Like, you have to figure it out kind of thing. Um, She was like, use your little electronic organizer and go through and find somebody in your phone book to come pick you up. She told her to call her back at work as soon as she made it home to make sure, like, she made it safe. So, Misty is like, yeah, yeah, whatever. And then she mentions to her mom, oh, well, Ruben can just come get me. And her mom instantly shuts this down and was like, no way, anyone but him. So, a little background on Misty and her mom. Misty Donna Copsey was born March 10th, 1978, and Misty was mostly raised by her single mom, and, like, she still had a relationship with her dad, but her parents split, like, as soon as she was born. They lived in a mobile home park for most of her life, and she had a really great community. The park was called Green Meadows. Then, in 1992, so literally the year that this takes place, her mom wanted to give Misty, like, a better life, so they moved into a duplex um, and actually had to, like, switch towns to Spanaway, which wasn't super far. She still stayed in contact with all of her friends, and since her mom worked nights, she was mostly left at home alone. 
Misty was described as being smart. She was fun. She was well-liked. She played sports and she was just all around like a good girl, like wasn't known for being troublesome or anything like that. Like everybody loved her. Everybody had good things to say about her. Misty and Diana had like a typical mother-daughter relationship. It wasn't the best, but they, they were still like on good terms. So when Misty called needing a ride that night, you know, her mom told her no, but I don't think that she realized at the time that it was the last time that she would ever talk to her daughter. Misty Copsey was last seen on September 17th, 1992, walking along the highway westbound at 10 p.m. You see, when the girls missed the bus, Misty called around from the payphone, but seemed to be like super unsuccessful. So she told Trina she was just going to walk the eight miles home. Now, I don't know about you, but even at 14, like walking eight miles is a lot. Like, shoot, walking eight miles is a lot right now. So the fact that she was even planning on saying like, oh, I'm just going to walk the eight miles home seems odd to me. But according to Trina, that's what Misty decided to do. And we'll kind of loop back and talk about this later because I have a lot more to say, as I'm sure you're all kind of thinking similar things, but we just got to just got to keep going. Also just curious like this is completely irrelevant i mean i got into podcasting because i listened to them and i have to ask like are you the silent type who just like listens and you have all your thoughts as you follow the story or are you like me and you actually like talk back either to yourself or literally to me even though i'm not there because i was always the talking type which means also in the right circumstances i.e uh not in the theater but i am totally that person that will talk to people on movies this has nothing to do with anything but i just wanted to ask do you talk back to me do you talk back to any podcast you're listening to or are you silent just out of curiosity anyways so the next morning diane wakes up and she expected to find misty in her room asleep when she didn't find her in her bed she wasn't like overly freaked out she just kind of assumed oh misty must have gotten a ride and stayed with a friend or whatever So she called Trina's house and left a message. At this point, it was super early in the morning, and so they were more than likely asleep. So again, she didn't freak out when she didn't make any contact. Later on that day, she still hadn't heard or seen from Misty, so she started to call around and started looking for her daughter. She stopped by Trina's house and left a note on the door because it was Friday and the girls would have been at school. She called Misty's grandma, but she hadn't heard or seen her either. Then she called the school, and that's when she learned that Misty wasn't there. And then the dark, disturbing reality kind of started to set in, and then she started to panic. So she ends up calling the police department, who proceeded to tell her that she needed to wait for 30 days before she could report her child as a missing person. Now, when I first learned this, my jaw absolutely dropped. Like, I was shocked. I'm pretty sure I text Tristan at the time because I just couldn't believe it. Like, I'm pretty sure I was just like, 30 days? A million exclamation marks and question marks. So, of course, this got me going. And I was like, there's no way that this is, like, what actually happened. So, I did look it up. And it is, in fact, what they ended up telling her mom. But in looking into it, there was more to the story as to what was going on. So, while they did tell her, oh, wait, you have to wait 30 days, there was a reason why they told her she had to wait 30 days. So, according to the articles that I read... Her mom may or may not have had an alcohol problem. Like, absolutely in no way judging whatsoever. I am just regurgitating facts. She liked the booze. No big deal. Whatever. I think she also may have had, like, a DUI or something like that. As well as a record that she had committed welfare fraud. So, 
all of this stacked against the single mom whose teen went missing doesn't really look so great. But unfortunately for Diane, in the months previously, like literally that same freaking summer, she actually reported Miss Misty as a missing person because apparently she wasn't home when she was supposed to be. So it turns out Misty did actually come home, but it was only after her mom had already reported her missing. So whether or not she was just embarrassed and didn't want to call the police back and say, oh, hey, she's here, or who knows, maybe she just forgot. I don't know. But she never called to fix the report or do whatever was needed to be done. So when the cops get another call about the same kid a few months later, they instantly check her past. And so they just kind of wrote it off as, oh, yeah, Misty's probably a runaway again. So while it's not correct information that she would have to wait 30 days to report her as a missing runaway, it was in that specific situation at that time. I can't tell you that that's how the rules are now in Puyallup. I have no freaking clue. But at the time, that's what they went with. All of this is hard. I mean, they have to do their jobs, but like, I don't know. I, I do understand how like this could have been like a whole kid cried wolf situation. So by all means, I'm not saying that how they handled the situation at the time was right, but I do get why there's certain like protocols or whatever, because you don't want some freaking Karen to call every time her son doesn't come home at the time he's supposed to come home. So I guess, I don't know. I guess it's just frustrating because it's a really, really fine line, but I get it. And again, this is just, this is something else that we'll circle back to and talk about because it is hotly debated on Reddit. Just saying. Another issue that became a problem was the location of where Misty went missing, as opposed to the where she actually lived. So I didn't get a map, but maybe I should have. But they just happened to be in two different jurisdictions, which also made things even more complicated. And if you remember anything about any previous episodes, police departments don't exactly play nice. So for Diane, she was actually bouncing between the Pierce County Sheriff and the Puyallup Police Department. I think eventually it was decided that the Puyallup Police Department would be the ones leading the investigation because that was where she went missing although where she lived fell in Pierce County. So, because that's not confusing enough. Now, in the initial report of her missing daughter, Diane made her report happen early in the afternoon with the police, with the Pierce County Sheriff, which would have been in Spanaway, where they lived. They were the ones who informed Diane that she had to wait 30 days, which was incorrect. And so I'm simply speculating here that she may have been given the 30-day wait because they were already known by the police department, but who knows? I wasn't there. But that's where we have like this whole confusion and annoyance of police departments and jurisdictions because Pierce County shared that they couldn't help unless the Puyallup Police Department invited them into the investigation. And I'm sure you guys, we can all guess it. I doubt that invitation ever happened because for some reason working together, which makes the most sense, is just bonkers and bananas and nobody does it. So whatever. So Diana spent her day trying to track down Misty. She's called all her friends, left notes, called the cops, called family, goes to the school, and she still can't find Misty anywhere. On a hunch, she decides she's going to call Reuben, you know, the one that Misty said she could call, but that her mom explicitly told her not to. Yeah. So she calls him and he's like, oh yeah, uh, 
she did she did call but um i told her i wouldn't go pick her up because i didn't have any gas diane takes his word and she just kind of moves on hopeful that her daughter was somewhere and that maybe this could all just be like one big misunderstanding and like it was over the summer and then they could just move on from it everything's fine then she hears back from trina who had found the note that was left on her door uh when she got home from school trina shares that she hadn't seen misty since last night when both of the girls decided to walk home their separate ways trina had not lived far from the fairgrounds in a town called sumner which i looked it up and it was still five miles away and i don't know like that's not that really isn't far but at the same time for both of these girls who are like 14 year old 14 year old girls saying they're gonna walk five and eight miles i'm just thinking who decided this was a good idea like if i was that parent i would be livid and again as trina's parents i would be like why would you guys even think that like at that point it wouldn't even be worth it so diane she decides that she's gonna call reuben back because to be honest she couldn't stand him and she had no reason to trust him either first of all homeboy was 18 whereas her daughter was 14. yuck secondly Back in the day before cell phones, people would have multiple phones in their home. And I remember this like actually being a thing. So you could literally like get on and listen to conversations, whether by accident or on purpose. Like I would always do it on purpose because I'd be be like, ooh, who's my mom talking to? What's she saying? Those kind of things. Uh, So Diane just happened to listen in on a conversation with Ruben and her daughter, Misty. And Ruben was telling her daughter, that he gets and i quote horny just looking at her end quote like ew what 18 year old boy is making these phone conversations like that's disgusting there's not only a huge gap between 14 and 18 mentally just not to mention like physically like there i don't know i have a lot of problems with this and i yeah we just have a lot of problems i get it sometimes girls don't look as young as they actually are But with Misty, that wasn't the case. Like, I've totally seen pictures, and she definitely looked like she was a 13, 14-year-old. She definitely looked like her age. And Ruben knew exactly how old she was, so he was just a creep. Apparently, it was said, and I don't know how factual it is, that Misty only liked Ruben because he had a car. And that she wasn't interested in him romantically or sexually or anything like that. She just really liked that he had a car, so she would kind of, like, use him because he had a car, which... Makes sense, but I don't know. I still think it's weird. So Diane calls Ruben again, right? I don't know, maybe to check his story again, see if he left anything out. But he's not home, so his roommate answers. His 15-year-old roommate. And I just, I have a lot of issues with that, too. But anyways, he tells Diane that actually Misty did call that night, and he drops a few more bombs. First off, Ruben was home when she called with his 13-year-old girlfriend. That's right, 18-year-old Rube seemed to have a thing for girls significantly younger than him, and I could just go on about how gross all of and wrong all of this is, but we don't have time for that. So Ruben was home with his little girlfriend, who then got upset because Misty called, because guys, hi, she's freaking 13. She storms out, gets all butthurt and bothered, and instead of going after his girlfriend, Ruben left with his uncle to go get Misty. At least that's what the roommate said. So there's that. With all this new news, Diane is 
absolutely furious. So she ends up calling Ruben back again and is like, what the actual? And he's just chill and he's like, no, no, my roommate has it all wrong. I didn't go get Misty. I did go with my uncle, but we went to a party instead. Then he claims that he woke up at his grandma's house and that he blacked out the entire night because, oh yeah, that's a thing that he does, blackouts. So it wouldn't take long for Diane to start putting out flyers in hopes that someone would come forward with any information, you know, anything that would help bring her daughter home. She pleaded with Misty's friends saying like, I promise you she's not in trouble. I just want her to come home. Like I just need my daughter to be safe. The first few hours turned into days. And in that time, she was actually able to find out who the bus driver was that was working the night that Misty went missing. So the driver noted that he did see Misty, like he totally recognized her. And he um, told her that that night his shift was already done because she did ask for a ride. And he said that he wasn't heading to Spanaway, but she could try to just take the bus to Tacoma and then catch a bus home from there. So this makes him the last person to have actually seen and have talked to Misty. Like this is the last confirmed of her being alive. September 23rd, 1992, my dad's birthday. It had been six days since Misty had vanished into thin air. Diane is able to officially put her on the missing persons report. They reassure her that she has nothing to worry about. Misty's just a runaway and she's going to pop up in no time. But that time never came. September 29th, just a few days later, police decide that they're going to go to Misty's school and they're just going to, I don't know, maybe ask a few classmates if they might have any clues as to where Misty was. But rather than talk to Trina, who was with her on the night that she went missing, they talked to a couple random girls who weren't even really friends with Misty at the time. You know, because that's what good police do. And because they're talking to teenage girls who are super notorious for being honest and truthful all the time, do I get that they would have wanted to talk to people, but it just doesn't make sense to me that they wouldn't go talk to Trina or any of her close friends for that matter. So I'm under the impression they went to the school and they just kind of picked like two girls that would have been in the same grade or same class as Misty and decided to talk to them. And I just want to ask these guys, like, are you new? Is that how you do police work? Because it doesn't make sense to me. Like, I don't know, whatever. So Diane meets up with the lead investigator at Misty's school, as I said, to try to get some info. And that's where they pick these two random girls who claim to have either seen or heard from Misty since she was last known to be alive. The first girl claims that she saw Misty at the Color Me Bad concert that was four days after she went missing. The other girl claimed that Misty herself called her and shared with this girl that she was safe in Olympia. Now, had these claims been verified as truth, then great, that's a lead. Sounds wonderful. However, neither of these girls were even friends with Misty. They were mere acquaintances or knew who she was. And <clears throat> what's worse is that years later, the girl who claimed to have gotten a phone call from Misty actually ended up confessing that she never got a call from Misty. The whole thing was made up because Misty was popular and this girl figured if she had Misty calling her, that would make her cool too. What in the actual farts, guys? So this is a huge problem for various reasons, but the biggest one being that this was what fueled the police department's theory that Misty was still alive and that she was fine and that she had just yet to come home. So like having these girls say these things 
even though they weren't proven to be valid whatsoever, it just, the police were like, oh yeah, see, Misty's alive. She's fine. Diane, you need to go home and have another drink. You just, you just don't, you just need to wait. Your, your daughter's fine. Your kid's fine. And I don't know, it really just didn't help anything. And they just wanted to make it seem like she just wasn't accepting that her daughter was a runaway. So they actually said, that they weren't going to keep her on the missing persons list, but they were actually going to move her to the runaway list. However, her mom just couldn't shake the feeling that something was seriously wrong here. So she's growing more and more discouraged. And the fact that the police department didn't believe her was not helpful in any way whatsoever. To make matters worse, this cop ends up going on some local radio station where he makes an absolute fool of Diane, stating that Misty straight up ran away and is claiming that her mom knows exactly where she is and she's fine. So pretty much telling the public, like, take down the flyers, ignore them, you guys can all stop looking like she's fine. And I don't understand how this was even, like, able to be aired at all. Like, what person decided this was a good interview to put on, on radio? I, I don't know. I don't have words. I honestly feel like it's like a high school, middle school situation, but it's it's not. Like, this is a human being. This is still a girl. Can't be found at the moment. And I just feel like they're handling it kind of like a popularity contest. What happened next is just bonkers to me. And it's not what you think. It's just a piece of the case that makes you go, hmm. Enter the stage, Corey Bober. Who is Corey Bober, you ask? Well, friends, he is a crime sleuth. Washington's own Elliot Ness, Sherlock Holmes, whatever you prefer, he is the guy. Why is this guy relevant? Well, you just sit back and let me tell you how this special friend is intertwined with this case. It all starts with the fact that he was really into crime. Much like you, much like me, and thousands of other people. But Corey, no. Corey took it to another level. He was a step above the rest of us folks because he spent his time zoning in on the highest profile criminal at the time, the Green River Killer. Now remember, this is 1992, okay? First of all, we haven't covered him yet, but let's just, let's just scratch the surface for a brief second and let me give you some fast facts on the Green River Killer, okay? Number one, he had 49 to 71 victims. Wow. Number two, they were mostly sex workers. Number three, the first five of his victims were found in the Green River, hence the name Green River Killer. Um, he would strangle his victims. Many of them were teen girls. He would dump bodies in King County, and he would return to the bodies to sexually assault them. So yeah, that guy. Uh, Corey was obsessed with this guy like Eminem is with Mariah Carey. And he followed the case, he knew it well, but he already had a suspect in mind, and so he was really fixated on proving why his guy was the guy. Corey was known well by the police, and uh, not well known in a good way. More like known because, yeah, he's the guy who shows up all the time and, like, tries to do the cop's job for them. So, Corey was completely unaware of who Misty was until one day his mom showed him a flyer of the missing girl from the fair. All at once, this sets a fire for Corey because, you see, not far from where Misty was last seen, there was, like, the strip mall where the bodies of two girls were found two years and one month apart to the day. 
Now, Corey felt as though these two girls must be victims of the Green River Killer. And in fact, he had even predicted that another girl would be murdered in the fall of 1992 because of the pattern that was left from the other two girls. So one went missing in 1988, the next in 1990, and Misty would have been the third in 1992, according to Corey Bober. Now, it wasn't concrete evidence, but it was a start, and finally, it was somebody who actually believed Diane that something had happened to her daughter. So Corey fills her in, right, on everything he knows, all his tricks, all his connections, and the two kind of become, like, fast friends on the, like, spending hours on the phone going over every little bit of information that they can gather. But it really didn't take long for Diane to realize that this guy, while he could be helpful, really wasn't interested in the health and welfare of Misty. He was also super quick to crush all of her hopes and dreams of her daughter someday returning home by telling her, like, yeah, Misty's dead. Like, so just accept it. And basically, he told her, like, this is not verbatim, so, but basically wanted her to be prepared to, like, find her daughter's body and just kind of, like, let go of any hope of her ever being found alive. And this wasn't because Bober was, like, heartless. It was more, like, he was so consumed by the Green River Killer. If Misty was, in fact, a victim of the Green River Killer, her odds of survival were zero. So, I, on one hand, like, you might think, like, oh my gosh, this guy's, like, super awful and not helpful for her, but at the same time, like, I don't even think he meant it that way. I think he was just so, like, single-minded that that's the way it happened. So, Corey really, like, jumping on the case here meant that if he was ever able to find Misty's body and she was connected to the Green River Killer, it would really only further aid him in discovering, like, who the killer actually was because you see like i said earlier he already really had a suspect that he felt was responsible for the green river murders and according to him the green river killer's real identity was actually a man named randy and it was actually it was an old acquaintance of Corey's. so how he got to this connection i i really don't know and i don't really care i guess But on October 5th, less than a month after Misty disappears, Corey calls the cops and he's like, all right, fellas, step aside. The real detectives here, watch me work my magic and I'm going to prove to all of you that you're all fools because I'm going to prove to you who the Green River Killer is. I'm going to solve all of these mysteries and just win the day, right? Uh, The Puyallup PD is like, great, Diane, you picked like the one dude we all believe is a quack. Thanks for making our life 10 times worse. So, like, it really didn't help her in her situation and her relationship with the police department whatsoever. But it also, to me, kind of sounds like middle school drama that you might find, like, on the Disney Channel. Only this is adults and this is real life. So, I feel bad for Diane that she's kind of, like, put in this, like, triangle between them. When, in all reality, the person who cares the most about what happens to Misty is her mom. So in this combo that took place between the cops and Bober, they're like, all right, buddy, we got this. Let us do our jobs. Misty's a runaway. And that's all there is to it. So just stay out of it and like, let us do our job. But Corey, yeah, he doesn't work like that. And he really starts to like get under their skin. And without knowing explicitly what is said, I like to personally sum it up that he just kind of talks trash about how they suck at their jobs, which mm, at this point, they kind of are sucking at their jobs. 
And in turn, the cops are like, you know what, buddy? Even if we do something out, you and Misty's moms are going to be the last ones that we're ever going to tell. Now, this would obviously be heart-wrenching for Misty's mom for obvious reasons. But Corey Bober, like, he has nothing to lose. So I just have to sit here and think, like, really, guys? Like, are you going to listen to this guy? Really? But I'm also saying I would have really loved to have been a fly on the wall for those conversations because, like, it's not funny. Like, it's absolutely not funny at all. But the whole situation is comical. And the way that these grown men are acting and not really putting into perspective, like, what's actually happening here is just frustrating. So, apparently, Corey also loved to blackmail the cops, if you will. Like, I don't know what other way to say it. But he would constantly threaten to go to the media if the cops didn't play nice or do what he wanted the way that he wanted. Which sounds very manipulative to me. And I don't know if he ever did what he would threaten to do or if the cops just, like, never called his bluff. I don't know. Who knows? But this went on for way too long. All the while, let's remember, Misty Copsy is either a runaway or she's missing. Like, she's still not at home. So that's a problem. And that's what needs to be focused on rather than who's better at doing their job. Like, that that part doesn't matter, in my opinion. Also, super fun facts. I guess Corey Bober was like a small-time drug dealer of weed of all things. Which is obviously super legal here in Oregon and the Pacific Northwest, like a few other states. But because of this and the cops kind of like needing him to get out of their way, they essentially put together like a drug bust. And you know me, I don't believe in coincidences. But whether or not they did it just to get rid of him, I'm not sure. Like, I don't know how well, how much it was already like in the works or if they really just like threw it together because they're like, dude, we need to get him out of our way. Like we need him to go away. But he ends up getting caught and he is convicted and he was facing up to four years in prison. In this time, Diane kind of struggles because she wants to believe that Corey is there to help her. But again, he's pretty obsessed with his own agenda and it kind of just seems like he's using her. But I asked the question, aren't they kind of using each other? I don't know. And the cops are all sort of, sorts of twisted and they can't stand Corey. So they're like, Diane, you really got to drop this guy. Like, you don't know him. We're the cops. We're the good ones. We're the ones that are supposed to help you, right? So she actually ends up listening to them and files a restraining order against Corey, but then drops it like two weeks later. Now, I couldn't find any clarity as to when he went to jail, but Bober does end up serving something like a year or just under that. So he goes away at some point and him and Diane do stay in touch. I mean, at the end of the day, while he was a kook, he did somewhat help her. And he was more willing to hear her than the cops ever were. And for Diane, like, that spoke volumes. I can only imagine how hard that must be for her, you know, to, like, just be in that situation. And anyone can say what they want and have an opinion. But when you're a mother desperate to find your kid and the cops who are supposed to help you don't take you seriously, I'm sure it must have been nice to feel like she had an ally. Like she had somebody who believed her that something was wrong. Even if that ounce of support, you know, still led to her noticing like red flags. Now, months have passed and finally the cops decide to remove Misty from the runaway list and actually move her under the missing under suspicious circumstances, which this was totally a good thing. But 
I'm also saying this is months of time that they should have been investigating that they weren't. And now they want to come at it like months later. We all know the first 48 are the most critical. So now we're looking at 60 to 90 days. I think it's hard to expect the best work when so much time has passed. Because let's face it, the last place that she was even seen was outside. And I'm sorry, but time's not really um, beneficial when it comes to the elements. So if there were any clues or any evidence that would have been left behind outside, most of it's like probably gone by now, if there was anything. Somehow, some way, Corey gets a hold of some major information. And the only way I can imagine it happening is homie must have paid the guy off. That's not facts. That's 100% my uh, assumption, FYI. But I imagine some like Alice and Betty from Riverdale meet up with the medical examiner. Either way, Corey is still dead set on who is responsible for Misty's death, right? Now, it's the same guy that he assumes is responsible for the other girls who went missing in the pattern before her. So, of course, he has his guy, and his guy has to be the guy. So, he ends up cornering some investigator or something like that, and he ends up finding out where the police originally found the bodies, Because the two girls were found, like, yards away from each other, but in the same general location. And remember, one was found in 88, and one was found in 1990. I mean, I think I heard one person say that the guy must have been drunk, or I heard another person, or I read, I didn't hear, I read another person say something like, oh, he must have cornered them or something. But Corey seems to be a pretty convincing dude. So, either way, he got the info. I guess it really doesn't matter how he got it, he still got it. Now, I'm not saying because he was a drug dealer, like, he was super happy to do illegal things. I am saying, however, that Diane did confess that he did some pretty illegal stuff in order to get what he wanted. And I want to just be like, are we surprised? Like, no, of course not. Just as he promised, uh, Bober ends up going to the media and he informed them that Misty was a missing person And that he was going to prove that the cases were all connected to the Green River Killer by doing a search on the 410. Now, it was Bober's idea that if he announced it this way, it would either entice the killer to leave clues behind. Kind of how, like, we know killers will insert themselves into investigations. They'll show up at vigils, stuff like that. Real psychopaths cannot help themselves. So, I think there's a strategy here and that he was just trying to get the perp to show up or mess up anything. Sadly, it didn't really work out for them. The search parties found nothing. Diane was so depressed that she actually attempted suicide. Then, in January of 1993, Diane went on a local news show where they shared her story and they were able to, like, take calls, get tips, all that jazz. And a call comes in from a woman who claims to have seen Misty that night walking near a 7-Eleven. Now, I did learn that they were able to check this, and there was a surveillance camera that showed Misty there sometime in the 9 o'clock hour. However, the footage was, quote-unquote, lost, and I don't know by who or why, but it just was. And then this woman, her info, her name, everything was never tracked, never traced, so it was basically just like an empty lead, which that, again, has to be super crushing to get excited because you feel like you have something and then you go investigate it or then you follow through with it and then it just shatters you to pieces because it falls through the cracks. Finally, a break comes in the case when Bober ended up going back to the place where he got the original info on the other bodies and he grills this guy to verify like were we in the right spot. 
turns out they actually weren't. And the search that they did was on the wrong side of the freeway. Yikes. I mean, this was good news for them because it means that they could throw another search, throw together another search party. But it also meant for Diane, there's a chance that they could find the remains of Misty. And that's not something she was exactly looking forward to, right? Unbeknownst to Diane, it seemed like Bober was still more interested in proving his case once again. You know, the one where the Green River Killer is really this dude named Randy? Yeah, that one. So Bober somehow figured out that when Missy went missing, Randy was actually in the area of the fairgrounds because his sister was having a baby, so he was at the hospital. Thus, making him the one responsible for Misty and the two girls as well. So now, all they needed to do was search in the area in the right place this time and find some evidence, prove it to the police, and, you know, prove to the world that he's been right and he's a winner and blah, 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 all that good stuff. So what does one do when they're trying to prove something and they want everybody to know about it? They call the media, of course. February 7th, they get a search party put together and the media is there. All the news crews show up, as well as the family and friends of Misty. And they start to comb through the area on the south side where, as before, like they were searching on the north side. And that's when they actually discover something. Diane is devastated. Whereas Corey, he's elated. Like he's super excited. He could hardly contain himself. He was so ecstatic that they had actually found something that even everybody at this, like at the search party is kind of like disturbed by it. They're like, whoa, dude, settle down. It all just kind of seems weird to me. And it just screams red flags, you know, in a thousand different ways. But I wasn't there, so I can only make assumptions and speculate from all this info gathered. In the search, they did not find a body, but they found a pair of jeans, which happened to be the very jeans that Misty had borrowed from her mom on the night that she went to the fair. Inside the jeans were a pair of socks and a pair of underwear that weren't identified as being the exact ones that she had been wearing that night because her mom wasn't sure, but they did say that they did belong to her. And I mean... I couldn't tell you. I know what my kids' underwear looks like, but I couldn't tell you which ones they wore last. Like, I feel like that's kind of weird for older children. But what made this even more interesting is the fact that the girls who had been murdered in 88 and 1990, their clothes had also been found just like Misty's with the clothes inside one of the pant legs. So that was kind of alarming. But before we start jumping into any conclusions about who was responsible for Misty, I just want to point out a couple things that I learned listening to, like, the various podcasts and reading all the articles. First of all, the detective who was not on the case but was just kind of interested in what happened um, and was kind of doing, like, his own little side search, he said that he had been in that area either weeks or a month before the search party and he didn't find anything. Now, is it plausible that the suspect had later put the clothing items there? Yeah. However, I just kind of find it odd. Secondly, it all just seems really strange to me in the way that the evidence is found, especially where and how, because either A, it's related to the murders, whether they're connected to the Green River killer or not, or B, they were planted there. And honestly, like, this isn't the one that I want to go with, but it is the way that I kind of lean. I definitely lean more towards B personally because it just seems too tidy. It seems too coincidental. Like, this is too put together in my opinion. I do wish I could ask, like, what do you guys think? 
and I wish I could hear your responses because I'm totally open to being proven wrong. However, my like gut instinct is like, this was so wanted or this was wanted so badly that it's the puzzle pieces fit too well. Like it's just, they were already pre-glued together in my opinion. Another thing that I thought was weird was that it was noted that the previous victims' bodies had been found pretty deep into the woods and not just off the freeway or anything like that. Whereas Misty's pants were kind of found more closer to the road, uh, they did rule out the fact that whoever did it hadn't put them there recently because of the fact that there was so much dirt on them. So it was proven that the pants had been out there for X amount of time. I don't know how much time, but it was said like they weren't just recently put there. Uh, later that month, Misty's hairbrush was located half a mile from where her clothes were found. But that was it. It was just kind of, all right, found her hairbrush, cool beans, move on. They were able to examine the pants and they didn't find any DNA of anybody or anything like that, but they did find some red paint chips. So this is where the case kind of gets messy because there's a lot going on. Like there's a lot going on all at once. And I, I guess in the area after the pants had been found, there was this young girl who had been walking really late at night and she was about 15 years old and some creep in a red car pulls up next to her and starts saying like really weird things. And then he like tried to get her in her car, in his car. But when she wouldn't get in there and like totally blows him off, he got super angry, gets out of the vehicle and straight up attacks her. After sexually assaulting her, he attempts to kill her. Uh, I think he like beat the crap out of her and then tries to throw her body into a ravine, like leaving her to die there. This girl is incredible. She ends up fighting for her life and she actually ends up living. Ultimately, he gets caught and he ends up receiving a sentence, but he actually only serves like seven years. Sexually assaulting a 15 year old girl, cause he's a grown man, and um, attempted murder and he gets seven freaking years. Then he gets out early on parole, and I think he ended up doing the same thing to another girl. So for me, I think this is super frustrating, the fact that he was in the same exact area that Misty went missing after another girl, not much different than Misty, like age-wise, ends up getting attacked. Then he goes to prison, gets out, and he does it again. And the whole time, the police never take note of his name. They never put him into questioning. They never did anything. So whether or not he was the one responsible, I have no idea. But I just think that it's interesting to note and it's definitely a possibility. And the fact that they didn't even question him about her at all makes zero sense to me. People are also really quick to point out in hindsight, you know, that maybe Diane and Corey were in on it together and that they just actually grabbed a pair of Misty's pants and put them out there themselves to kind of like get the cops to take them seriously. And while that's not found to be confirmed factual, just the thought of it, I mean, it, it does make you think, I don't know. Corey did have like kind of a good alibi. Um, I think he was actually assaulted that night. I don't know how or why, but there was definitely like a police report from it. And I don't know whether he went to the hospital or not. Um, and it also said that he had agoraphobia which is an extreme irrational fear of entering open or crowded places or even leaving one's own home or of being in places where escape is difficult. So Corey didn't own a car. Uh, he never had a driver's license. So I guess I kind of ruled him out somehow by saying like, 
there was no way he could have been doing that and be responsible for Misty all at the same time. So with all this being said, I want to take a time and let's go ahead and loop back around and I want to talk about Ruben. So we already established that Ruben's a creep because he's a gross 18-year-old boy and he likes 14-year-old girls and has a 13-year-old girlfriend, right? I guess at some point a tip came in and a previous friend of Misty actually said that the cops should look at Ruben a little more because he was always hanging around at Misty's house and he was actually constantly leaving before Diane ever got home. But what's even more interesting about this is the fact that Diane actually ran into Ruben like at a grocery store or something and that when she went to try to go talk to him like he straight up just like ran away. Now let's remember homeboy changed his story with Diane within hours of Misty's disappearance. Then she randomly runs into him and he straight up like runs away. Sounds suspicious to me. I don't know. And I also just think it's really annoying. But as soon as somebody else mentions something, then all the police are like, oh, hey, that's a great idea. Maybe we should do that. Although Diane tried to say something and they just paid no attention to her or didn't listen to her, which is just, I don't know, annoying and disrespectful. And I don't understand why, like, why was she on your guys's like poop list? I don't understand. Was what she did like so awful and horrific or did one of like did she turn down one of your cops and so he was like let's have a vendetta against this lady i don't know what it is but six months after misty disappeared the cops finally decided hmm maybe they should interview trina way to go guys high fives six months let's do it that's when they learned that trina actually hadn't been honest with diane or with them about what actually went down on the night that she last saw misty you can't see it, but I'm rolling my eyes. Turns out that the plan the entire time was for the girls to get a ride from Ruben. But then he, when they called him, he came up with his cock and bull story about how he had no gas money. That's when they learned that Trina wasn't even planning on riding with Ruben anyways because she thought he was sketchy and gross. But you know what? Trina, she wasn't any better because she was 13, 14 years old and she was actually dating a 23-year-old freaking man. A grown man who was dating a little girl. Uh, yeah, and that guy, he actually offered to come pick up both of the girls, but Misty felt uncomfortable with him, so she declined, and that's when she ended up walking. And honestly, this just... All of this sounds just like a giant cluster of chaos, and I want to use curse words, but we try to not be, not we try. We're a clean show here, so I can't use explicitives, but good gracious. Fill in the blanks. What is going on? Where are all of these kids' parents? Why are grown men dating little girls? That's disgusting. But before we jump back in on Ruben, let's take a hot second, and I want to talk about Trina's boyfriend, Michael, because it's relevant. Not because I want to talk about the fact that a 23-year-old boy, or 20, well, he might as well be a boy. If you're 23 years old and you're dating a 13-year-old, you might as well not accept that you're a man. Like, that's gross. First of all, just nasty. Nasty, nasty. What is wrong with you? It's disgusting. But weirdly, we have to talk about Michael because he has a connection to both of the girls who had previously been murdered in 88 and 1990. I don't like coincidences, guys. I don't believe in them. So Michael, 23-year-old Michael, 
actually had a, I don't know what to call it, a dropped conviction or accusation of actually assaulting an 11-year-old girl when he was 16. So he already has a a rap sheet. So there's that. And I don't know, I just want to say, let's let's take a pause and take a count. How many possible suspects do we have right now? Because I'm pretty sure the count is four, and we're not even done yet. And there is circumstantial evidence for every single one of these people to be connected to what happened to Misty. So after Trina comes clean about Michael, um, he ends up being questioned in which his past is brought up and he claims, no, no, I'm innocent. And is like, oh, this is all just a misunderstanding. And, you know, my previous past has nothing to do with Misty. I never would have heard her, blah, blah, blah. And (laughs) I guess at the end of the day, you know, that worked because the cops are like, oh, okay, buddy, see you later. Have a great life. And they let him go. And um, I don't know, all of his story, I guess, checked out and they had no reason to further question him. So they just were like, see ya. And I don't know, this just kind of makes me uneasy because (laughs) what? You talk to the guy once and he has an actual like record and you guys are like, oh, well, he said it wasn't him. So we're going to go with it wasn't him and let's just move on. I, I don't know. It just makes no sense to me. So with Michael out of the way and obviously not the one responsible, let's go back to talking about Ruben. So like I said, Diane had often said she was never even sure about him even before Misty went missing. So with his whole changing his story, uh, yeah, obviously it made her even more uncomfortable with him. So when the cops finally do decide to look into him, I think that they were probably anticipating just talking to some dumb young adult. But what they found was actually way more than that. First off, today I learned that you can actually throw off a lie detector test by pretending to fall asleep. Or... Basically, by minimizing your emotions because it feeds off of your reactions physically to the questions that are asked, which, I mean, it makes sense. So, essentially, like, this guy was, like, basically trying to make himself fall asleep because while he's being asked these questions, then his body isn't going to, like, physically react to them. And I'm like, well played, sir. And while they don't clear him, I'm pretty sure his test ends up coming back, like, inconclusive and must have just felt like a giant waste of time. But they're just like, oh, well, he's pretty evasive to this questions, but we're not going to do this again because we don't think that he's the guy. And they only decide to give him this test after they pay a visit to his work and they talk to his boss. And his boss is like, oh, yeah, Ruben brags about how you guys are looking in the wrong place because he knows where Misty's body is. Hi, excuse me, what? Ruben knows where Misty's body is. Now, apparently, he knew where the body was, and it's actually six miles away from the fairgrounds. And I assure you, I did not connect these dots personally, but do you want to know what just so happens to be six miles away from the fairgrounds? Hmm, I'll wait. Why, none other than Reuben's grandma's farm. You know, the place where Reuben just happened to have ended up after he blacked out the day that Misty disappeared. All I gotta say is, really? really? I don't know. I have a couple problems here. And I don't know, maybe you do too. For me, number one, if you said you are quote unquote an innocent man, why on God's green earth would you claim to know where a body was? Innocent people don't know where dead bodies are. And hi, Reuben, but who said there was even a body? 
Who said that there was a body? Misty has disappeared. No one has confirmed a death. Even if it is highly suspected, nobody has flat out said or declared Misty to be dead. Secondly, six miles is oddly specific. Why would you even say that? Especially when you idiotically claimed that you black out and that you end up at your Nana's house whose home is the exact same distance from the last place that Misty was seen? Like, I have a lot of issues with this. Why does nobody else have a lot of issues with this? That's a silly question. Lots of people have lots of issues with this, but the cops at the time, they were like, nah. I, I mean, if you had listened to Diane, I want to I wanna ask the cops this. If you had listened to Diane and questioned Ruben earlier, wouldn't this info have proven to be more helpful for you? Wouldn't you have wanted to do a search in that six-mile radius area in the place in which he blacked out on his grandmother's property? Doesn't that make sense to you? But alas, that's not what happened. So after the first, uh, what I would say, failed polytest, they do end up questioning Ruben. But when they go question Ruben about why he said he knew where the body was, he says, I don't know, which... I, he says that he merely said it to get his boss off his back. Sure, Jan. Sure. But at the same time, it doesn't make any sense because, like I said before, he claims to black out the night that Misty disappeared conveniently right when the second phone call would have come from her. So with that being said, essentially he has no alibi for the night that Misty disappeared. And what do we do with people who don't have alibis and a missing girl? Well, we let them go, of course, because that's what makes the most sense, right? Like, in all seriously, they completely let him go, never questioned him again, never talked to him again, or his friends, or his family, or anything like that. Like, I'm dead serious. They were like, hey, hey, Ruben, have a great life. Bye. And what's so freakishly annoying and inconvenient is the fact that not long after the police gave him his poly and questioned him, Ruben ends up selling his freaking car to a junkyard to be destroyed. Let's sit on that for a second and think. Is that normal? Definitely not. Also, weirdly, after Michael, Trina's boyfriend, after he was questioned, he ends up selling his car too. But he ends up selling his car to an undercover cop who did some, like, forensic testing on it. And I don't think they found anything because nothing ever becomes of it. But I just wanted to add that in there because we like details, right? Right. So even though they never went after Reuben again, it is interesting to learn that he ended up getting married and his then wife had to uh, get a restraining order against him because he threatened to kill her and burn down the house. Or I don't know, maybe he was going to burn down the house, thus killing her. I don't know. He also went to prison for theft. So there's that. Now, after going through all of the possible suspects, the cops even end up looking at Diane thinking that maybe she had something to do with it even though she was working that night as a caretaker. And honestly, guys, it just seems like they're pulling at anything and everything to just, like, they messed up so badly and did it so wrong and so out of order that they're like, well, we got to find somebody responsible. Let's, let's pick the mom and let's throw her under the bus. But, you know, who am I? I'm just a simpleton making assumptions. Also, they were still running around saying Misty was a runaway and that she was going to show up at any time and just be back. And I have to ask, did y'all really think that? Or was that just the story that you were told to sell? Or, like, did the Puyallup Police Department actually believe, like, no, she really is a runaway? I want to look you in the eye and I want to ask that question. And I want you to tell me all the answers. I'll wait. 
Years seem to pass, and around the time that Misty would have been turning 18, a story goes out in the media saying that she was going to make a phone call home, and they actually even get her father to uh, be a part of it. And I don't know, I just think it's kind of sad to, like, pull these parents in and, like, get their hopes up the way that they did, because obviously they're thinking they're going to get this call from their daughter, and that call never came. In the year 2001, the Green River Killer was captured, and we now know him as Gary Ridgway. And although they tried to make the connection, it turns out he wasn't connected to the two other girls who were murdered in that area. Which, this is relevant because that either means, A, the three cases are connected, and there's somebody else who is responsible for it, or, B, just those two cases are connected and Misty's case is isolated. Either way, all the time and effort spent by Corey Bober trying to prove how Randy was the true gre- true Green River killer just kind of went out the window, along with all of his possible credibility. Sorry, Corey. Now, in order to further prove how they weren't connected to the Green River killer, Gary Ridgway did have an alibi for September 17th, 1992, which that's the day that Misty disappeared. So I guess, I mean, it's good to know that they questioned him about her, right? Like, good job. Hilariously, Cory Bober is a honey badger, and he doesn't care. He doesn't believe that Gary Ridgway is the one responsible, and to this day, he still believes that his acquaintance, Randy, is the one who was responsible for the Green River killings. And I did just like a quick Google search, and I learned that Cory Bober, he's still alive and he's kicking. I found he has a Facebook page, and I think the last post on it was like from 2020. And I also love it because he writes in all caps, which is like, it makes it seem to me like he's like yelling at you. And he still very much believes that Randy is the one responsible. He's like, the cops have it all wrong. And he actually called himself the serial killer detective of females or something like that. I don't know. It just sounds creepy. Also, I did see that because people have been making so many podcasts about Misty's case over the last few years, um, Corey listens to them. So, hey, Corey. Um, and he ended up threatening to sue a podcast because of the things that they said. So, sorry, Corey, please don't come at me. I don't have the money to fight you. Diane ended up hiring a private investigator in 2008, and sadly, it kind of, like, went nowhere, to which I'm just going to be a little snatch face and say, well, maybe it's because we wasted the first 60 to 90 days not investigating a crime because we wanted to assume that she was a runaway when she wasn't. But anyways, lastly, as we kind of wrap up, like, my final thoughts on this case, I guess years and years after Misty has been missing, um, I don't know if it was, like, a Reddit-type website or whatever, but there was this conversation in which someone claimed to have seen Misty get inside a yellow vehicle on the night that she went missing, But for some reason, whether it was because the cops decided that she was a runaway or whatever their stupid reasoning was, they never, like, looked into the tip. But 20 years after Misty's disappearance, there was some sort of UK website in which somebody was talking about how Ruben and his uncle were the ones who were responsible for Misty's disappearance on the night that she went missing. And they were actually seen driving a yellow vehicle. So with all that said... What are my thoughts? What do I think about what happened to Misty? And I just want to say, like, I don't freaking know. I think it's super sad that we have no, like, solid 
leads in order to come to a conclusion. I think there's four different options of the way it could have gone. And the saddest part is like, we're never going to know. I think if it would be amazing if in the years to come, someone would be able to like discover her body. Like I know that's not what, you know, her mom would hope for, but at the same time, like it might actually be okay to like bring closure and to kind of get more answers to the unanswered questions that we have. And I know that it does happen where bodies are discovered, you know, 20, 30, 40 years after things have happened. And this September, it will be 30 years since she was last seen. So I think that that would just be helpful for the family, in my opinion. I will say as of May of the year 2000, Misty was officially declared dead although her remains were never found. And yeah, this case is just super bananas. There's so much going on. There's so many different ways that it could have gone. And it's just really sad because we don't have the answers that we need in order to make even an educated guess. So my thoughts and my prayers go out to Misty's family. I'm sorry that this is still a nightmare for you. And I just want to hopefully bring some awareness and ladies don't go walking eight miles. Don't listen to your friends. Call your parents. I promise you if you're in a situation and you had to lie to your parents and your options are call your parents and get in big trouble or walk 10 miles, call your freaking parents. Call me. I will come pick you up. Like there's no need for little girls or, you know, women to be walking around, young women to be walking around by themselves because, There are ugly people out there who take advantage of you, and we don't need another life lost. So, yeah. Thank you so much for listening. I'm so happy to be back with you. I promise you I will not leave for a very long time. I can't promise you I'll never leave because life happens. But I promise you the rest of whatever we're set, and I'm so excited to be bringing more episodes. So thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye.